0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr James Betts from the Department of Health will examine the importance of eating breakfast for overall good health and whether missing breakfast could increase a person's risk of becoming overweight or of suffering from heart disease or diabetes. I'm going to start with a bit of a a quiz to start with. So um, if you'd just like to use your voting pads to give me a feel here. So is the obesity epidemic a simple case of eating too much and or doing too little. So do we think energy balance is a simple case of having a calorie excess, or is there something to do with the obesity epidemic that does not rely on calories in or out? You could have too many and not gain weight. So if you'd all like to register your votes. Okay. One for yes and two for no. Okay, so uh, hopefully there wasn't too much confusion. Throughout that we managed to determine that 65% of you think that this is a case of simply eating too much or doing too little. These are things we'll hopefully run through during the talk. So obviously many of you are going to say, I think it's a bit of both. But what I'd like to see here is if you had to choose one, which is most important, is the problem, the current obesity epidemic, to do with eating too much, or with doing too little, so too little exercise, physical activity and so on. So polling's open on this one. If you'd like to register your votes, one for eating too much if it's diet, two for doing too little. It doesn't show you the registered votes at the top, but it is receiving them. So in this case, I think we have a number of dieticians in the room who took part in the study. We're saying that it's mostly eating too much, and not so much on a doing too little, but a bare difference there. The percentages don't seem to add up there. What is the most important meal of the day? We've just heard what the current um, thinking is for many people. What do we think there? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, or does it not matter when you ingest your calories? They're all equally uh, important. So this would be a one, two, three, four on the pads. So most people are on message here, but then we've got uh, some of you who think that they're all equally important. Why might breakfast be so important? These are the things we often hear. Does breakfast kickstart your metabolism? Does it stimulate hyperactivity and make you feel like going for a run? Does it reduce the amount of snacks you have or the size of your lunchtime meal? Or is it just that breakfast foods tend to be the healthiest foods that we eat? So one, two, three or four. So certainly the kickstart metabolism is one you'll read a lot about and reducing snacking is probably the next most important. So those are the most common we hear about. Again, we'll hopefully address those today. Here's a good question then. I have a prediction about the answer here. So when I'm saying do you regularly consume breakfast, I'm asking whether on most days of the week do you have 50 calories or more? So that really means, do you have food? If you just have a cup of tea, even with the sugar in it, you wouldn't get to that 50 calories. So if you actually eat something within two hours of waking most days of the week, then you would vote yes. Okay, so I I guess that would be about 20 or 30% said no. That's the typical relationship in society. Okay, so... That went relatively well, considering the IT issues I was anticipating. Um, So, as a brief background to what we already know, um, as you heard at the outset and is in the uh, information provided ahead of this talk in the pamphlets, um, the evidence that currently supports the general belief in society that breakfast is so important for weight loss is heavily grounded in cross-sectional observations. What that means is surveys. Surveys will show us that people who tend to have breakfast tend to be slimmer, have lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, better uh, glycemic control, meaning their control of carbohydrate metabolism and glucose levels. So all these risk factors for diabetes and heart disease seem better in those of us who have breakfast regularly. So that, of course, does not mean that having breakfast causes you to be healthier Because that very same research shows us that those people who tend to have breakfast tend to follow just about every other healthy lifestyle factor we can look towards. So they tend to be more physically active, be less likely to smoke, be less likely to drink so much alcohol, have higher fibre intakes, lower salt intakes, lower fat intakes, you name it. Just about every factor that we can look on a society level, people who follow advice for breakfast probably follow advice for most things that the dogma in society suggests they should do. So what we require here is a randomised control trial. And back in 2008 I was surprised to find that no one had actually done a randomised control trial comparing having breakfast with not. And what randomised control trial means is we take a population randomly assign them with a 50% probability of going one way or the other into a breakfast group or a no breakfast group And then if we see changes in those individuals, we can ascribe that directly to a causal relationship, whether breakfast is improving health or skipping breakfast is deteriorating our health. So that's our starting point. I should say at the starting point, I don't and didn't have a vested interest either way. Um, We are talking about weight loss here and diabetes and cardiovascular disease that may relate to that. So I'm absolutely not saying that If you're an athlete going to the Olympics, you should turn up to your event in a fasted state. I've done enough research myself into sports nutrition to know the clear benefits of being fed state and supplementing with foods. Um, And neither am I saying that if you've got something important to do, so for children that means school. For most of us, if you have an interview or an exam, don't show up in a fasted state. What we are referring to here is on a daily basis, just if you have nothing more important to do than your daily chores... Will breakfast impact your ability to do that and then will that culminate in a chronic health change? So it was uh, uh, the BBSRC who funded this research and what I'm going to start by doing is just working through energy balance. This is our starting point, how our metabolism and how our balance of energy and therefore the fat stores in our body are absolutely a product of how much energy comes in, and how much energy goes out. That contributes to our energy balance. So the first thing to do is to flesh out what contributes to energy balance. So I'll work through each of the components on either side and this is a comprehensive list. These are all the factors that contribute to whether you're in positive energy balance and gaining weight or negative energy balance and losing weight. So on the left hand side here we have energy intake. That's very simply calculated by measuring the amount of each macronutrient you consume, the macronutrients being carbohydrate, fat, protein, and if you choose to, alcohol. Those are the only four substances from which humans can derive energy. And we know how much energy is provided by a gram of each. So fat provides the largest amount of energy per gram uh, by quite a long way. And by multiplying that up, we can come up with your total energy intake. shown here about... 40% of energy or so coming from fat, about the same from carbohydrate and the remainder from protein. This is typical of society. Not optimal, but typical in that most of us probably consume too much fat and too much protein. We add those together and we've got energy intake. On the other side of the energy balance equation, we also have three components, which I'll lead you through one at a time now. Firstly, resting metabolic rate. You sometimes see this referred to as basal metabolic rate. This is literally the amount of energy, the number of calories required to keep you alive. It's often a a theoretical construct, particularly basal metabolic rate. But if we just imagine the energy required to keep your brain ticking over, to keep your heart beating, your lungs inflating and deflating, um, homeostasis generally working in your body to keep you in a steady state, this is the amount of energy your body needs your body has evolved to be very efficient in this regard. So it uses almost the fewest it possibly can. So as a starting point, we can assume that generally resting metabolic rate is pretty much dictated by your body size and composition. We know how much energy it takes to keep bone, muscle and fat alive. So someone who's twice the size of you might have a larger resting metabolic rate. But unless you change either your body mass or the amount of it that's metabolically hungry like muscle, that's fairly set for most individuals. Diet induced thermogenesis then, sometimes referred to as the thermic effect of feeding this second component is the necessary investment of energy required when you eat. So for every um, gram of food that you consume, your body when we look at the metabolic processes involved, we see that Energy has to be invested to digest, absorb, and metabolize that food in order to get energy. So, for example, protein has about six calories per gram if we burned it on the desktop, but in your body, we count it as about four because your body has to ingest, uh, has to invest calories to derive the rest. So, on net balance, we get four calories from protein. Again, it's unlikely that this varies. It's true that different individuals have different diet-induced thermogenic rates. So, for example, people who are more overweight do seem to have a lower thermogenic rate for a given meal than more lean people. We know that's not the reason why they're overweight, because becoming overweight is what changes, changes this factor. And again, we don't expect these to change dramatically. If they do, this is a concept known as adaptive thermogenesis, whereby If you don't eat, you can reduce your metabolism to cope with that. And if you've eaten too much, you can increase your metabolism. This has really been shown in rodents, not so much in humans. So the difference being there, that rodents have about 1% of their body mass, brown adipose tissue. And this is fat that we have a small amount of on our backs. We have 100 times less than rats. So this is one example where... While rats might be able to boost their metabolism if they have breakfast or reduce it if they're in a fasted state, humans really we don't expect to show that same response. This top component is the most malleable, physical activity energy expenditure. You can't change your resting metabolism really. You can't really increase the amount of energy your body is going to use to get out of your foods. But if you decide to go for a walk twice a day or start an exercise program, you can increase this dramatically. So the combination of the two results in our energy balance. So to link back to breakfast then. If we take an individual who doesn't normally have breakfast and his weight stable, so reflecting the balance here, and we tag on a breakfast meal in the morning, so we can see this guy's about to have breakfast, if that's a 700-calorie breakfast, which is what we prescribed for six weeks in our experiment, we would expect these individuals to um, gain mass by a maximum of 4.1 kilograms per day. Equally then, if we take someone in energy balance and take away that same breakfast, so cut out 700 calories, we would expect them over the course of six weeks to lose 4.1 kilos per day. So in our experiment, this is exactly what we did. We had random assignment of individuals either to a breakfast group or a control group with breakfast as 700 calories per day. So this is fairly extreme in that we wanted to really maximise our chance of seeing what's going on or have people who couldn't eat a thing until 12 o'clock. So I think it's fair to say, um, and I know many of these people are in the room, both of these are equally difficult for many people. This you become very hungry and this can be quite challenging to get to the required number of calories. As good scientists, of course, we include a, a control group, so we have a total sample size here, at N, of about 100. And the control group we expect, and certainly the data are bearing out for us, that they should be weight stable. We're just going to make two measurements six weeks apart and let them use their normal lifestyle so nothing should change as a group. If you're interested to see the full methods, we have published um, a protocol paper. This has already been um, highly uh, uh, accessed via Biomed Central, um, where this paper in Trials Journal really lists every one of our methods. For today's purposes, suffice to say, you can just take away we've had people tested at baseline and then six weeks later having either consumed 700 calories a day or missed that 700 calories a day. So before we move on to that data, um, we just need to consider what we're looking for in our results. If there are no compensatory changes in anything else, telling somebody to have breakfast should make them gain weight, and telling someone to skip breakfast should make them lose a significant amount of weight. There's no surprise there, really. If we don't let somebody eat for half the day, they should lose weight. But remember the dogma we're starting with. Society telling us that having breakfast makes you lose weight. Eating makes you lose weight. And skipping breakfast, so not eating so much, makes you gain weight. So clearly what we are looking for is something I refer to as energy balance interactions. We're looking to see how a change in one side of this equation can affect other factors on that side of the equation and on the other side. For example, the more you eat the more your diet-induced thermogenesis increases. The more physical activity you do, this is a really complex area. If you do high-intensity activity, it can suppress your appetite. We did a study recently where we trained people for six months, and they just increased their appetite and ate more, so don't lose the weight. So this really justifies having a two-pronged approach where you must focus on diet and physical exercise and understanding how one might actually be affecting the other. And that's what we'll be looking for in the data I'll show you now. So to move back here, I'm going to talk first through these data, which um, refer to the energy in, and then these data, which (coughs) refer to energy out. And you'll see at each step, what we've done in this experiment is being careful to measure every single component of energy balance and also to look really mechanistically. So hopefully this will suit a public lecture in that On the one hand, we can see the outcomes that are most important to people. Do I lose weight? Do I get healthier? And on the other hand, we can really look as scientists to see what are the mechanisms for that. If we understand the mechanisms, we can target them more carefully and maximise the benefits. So to start with our energy intake, what we did um, at baseline and uh, at follow-up is to provide people with a... Breakfast or no breakfast trial. So every individual in the experiment came in on two occasions. Um, They either had breakfast on one day or didn't on the other day in a random order. And then we present them. Those of you who took part in the study will be sick of the sight of it, but the lovely pasta meal that we provide. And we simply leave people in the laboratory with a standardised message to eat as much as their hunger dictates. And then we measure how much of the lunchtime meal they eat in each trial. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, you can see a significant difference here in that if you don't have breakfast, you eat slightly more at lunchtime than if you did have breakfast. What's really important to note here though, is that if we tag on the number of calories in that breakfast, there's a significant difference in the opposite direction. So really what we're saying is that the compensation at a controlled lunchtime meal really isn't very much. So you're missing several hundred calories worth of breakfast. This can be between five and 700 calories for most of us. And you're cutting back then by about 100 calories at lunchtime. So cutting back on a lunchtime portion is really not what's explaining how fasting might make you slimmer. As I said, we were keen to look at the, the mechanisms involved here. So... Um, We have a whole range of hormones in this study, two which I'll just pick out for you, which um, you often see a lot of in the media, are ghrelin up here and leptin. And these are released in the body in response to feeding and in response to changes in your energy balance to try and dictate what your body should do. So these are encouraging your feeding behaviours. I'll just zoom in on the uh, ghrelin graph here. And uh, I do show a few graphs in this format, so I'll take a moment now just to talk you through what you're seeing because we'll come back to this. Just to deal with the left-hand panel, this is baseline. Participants either have their breakfast or their fasting day in the laboratory. We then follow them through to that past the lunch and then track them through the afternoon again. So what you can see here is everybody's ghrelin. is obviously quite high in the morning. They're all hoping for their breakfast. If we then give them their breakfast trial... We get a big drop in the ghrelin levels and this correlates strongly with the ratings we take from a psychological point of view. How hungry are you? We can see their hunger ratings coming down. Whereas it obviously continues to climb in the no breakfast trial. This is one of the data sets that I received in the last hour or so so I'm still kind of scratching my head or at least very interested in now. Because the breakfast trial actually by lunchtime recovers to the exact same place. So... You could look at that and say, well, the breakfast group are just as hungry at lunchtime. Perhaps that explains why their energy intake at that pasta meal I showed you wasn't really so different. What I'm really interested in at the moment is that then when they eat their pasta lunch, those who skip breakfast in the morning have a carryover effect where they respond with the expected drop in ghrelin and drop in their hunger levels, Whereas the breakfast group, that's abolished completely. So this is one of the findings. I'm still really scratching my head and interested in is this a second meal effect where morning feeding affects your hunger levels throughout the day or does ghrelin serve a purpose just to signal to your body we've had food today, in which case it only has to happen once. So if at the end in Q&A anyone wants to suggest to me how to interpret that, I'll be very grateful. Um, What we then have on every figure is the six-week intervention period whereby all these individuals were then assigned to their breakfast or fasting treatment. So either having breakfast every day for six weeks or skipping breakfast every day. And what we find with ghrelin, ghrelin is really an acute hormone. What I mean by that is it responds very quickly to a meal or a feeding on the day. It exerts its effects very quickly then. So this is really controlling your short-term energy balance. So... Perhaps it's unsurprising then that actually at follow-up, these are both breakfast trials, so we gave them breakfast both times at follow-up, and these curves are not different from one another, nor from the breakfast at baseline. So ghrelin doesn't seem to be changing chronically. (coughs) To complement ghrelin, we also measured leptin then. And in contrast, this is a hormone released um, more slowly, a more sustained release, And not in response to just a meal, but often in response to a sustained energy imbalance. So this is the hormone we look to to see differences between obese and normal weight individuals to see how their appetites may differ. Interestingly here, we have a response whereby when we fed um, the breakfast meal, it doesn't change so much, whereas fasting it does reduce. This one reduces because in in, uh, contrast to ghrelin, Leptin is what's making us feel satiated. So here, clearly, we're, this is consistent with the breakfast group becoming more hungry. And what's really interesting here is that then by 3.30 in the afternoon, three hours after they've had their pasta meal, that's where we really see the differences in leptin, showing that it is a really slow release and we're getting a delayed response. But again, consistent with this message that perhaps the um, consumption or omission of breakfast in the morning can exert carryover effects into later in the day, past the second meal of the day, in terms of hormones, and we'll move on now to see whether that really does affect energy intake. In the interest of uh, completeness, we um, we took some biopsies of people's adipose tissue, just their tummy fat, before and after the intervention. So this was before the six weeks, and this is afterwards. And in terms of leptin, we don't see any significant changes in the expression of the genes involved. So the process we're really looking for for most of our experiments is to see whether a gene is switched on and off, then we can look for relevant proteins in tissues or circulating in the systemic circulation, and then we can see whether those changes in hormones have affected whole body metabolism or behaviours. And consistent with the fact that we don't see any change in the leptin gene expression, you can see at follow-up, we also don't see any meaningful change in leptin concentrations. (coughs) So as I say, we now need to move on and see whether these changes we've seen here in ghrelin and leptin, at least on a daily basis, might be borne out in the data we have for whole body, um, uh, for free living energy intake. And these are the data we have then from the six weeks using diet records to see... How much food people choose to eat on a daily basis. And what you have here is significantly higher energy intake in the breakfast group than the fasting group. Consistent with our acute meal, you can see there's still a difference of 540 calories. So again, they are only compensating by just over 100 calories a day. So the the fasting group have not done what we'd expect of snacking more, eating larger meals, eating more frequently in order to top up their energy intake at lunchtime and at tea time. So specifically we've got a significant difference and we can see from taking a breakdown of the diet that this is due to significantly greater intake of sugars, carbohydrates and actually saturated fats. So this is completely understandable. Most breakfast foods are high in carbohydrates so... That would explain that. The saturated fats, I think those of you in the breakfast group will be aware. Sometimes, when you struggle to get to your 700 calories, you may have turned to a high energy density food to to make it there by 11 o'clock. Interestingly, this analysis shows up a few other things that we get back from our diet analysis. Um, One is that the breakfast group had about a litre of water a day more than the no breakfast group. Some of this water comes from food. obviously from drinks as well, which is why it's so interesting, because the fasting group were only allowed plain water until lunchtime. So if anything, I would have expected them to become better hydrated, but they certainly haven't managed that. Fibre intake, as you'd imagine, based on the composition of many breakfast foods, the breakfast group have higher fibre intake. Sodium's about the same. And another important factor that's difficult to put a number on is that feeding patterns were completely unaffected. We had a student last year who really went to town looking at every aspect of feeding patterns. And these groups did not differ in how many times a day they ate, how many snacks a day they had, or what times they ate their foods. So really the big difference here is simply that the breakfast group had more energy. So we've dealt with the first part, energy in. We now just need to deal with those three components, resting metabolic rate, diet-induced thermogenesis and physical activity energy expenditure to see if they really are lower in the um, fasting group. So in terms of resting metabolic rate, this was the one where everybody thinks that you can kick-start your metabolism with breakfast, but I mentioned at the outset the the general reasoning among scientists would be this is fairly set, Your body is very efficient to use as few calories as possible to keep you alive, so skipping breakfast doesn't really grant it any opportunity to reduce that. And sure enough, we find that resting metabolic rate is completely stable, baseline to follow up in the breakfast group and in the fasting group. So there really isn't any change in your metabolic rate, and that's consistent then with some hormones we measured. Your metabolic rate is controlled primarily by thyroid hormones, So we've measured the two active forms here, um, free t 3 and free t 4 and we don't really uh, need to go into detail with these figures. Suffice to say, there is absolutely no difference between groups, and that is consistent with the fact that resting metabolic rate did not change. In fact, the only evidence we have of any adaptation in terms of metabolic rate comes from the gene expression data that we looked at in our white adipose tissue in that the fasting group actually had a significant increase in uncoupling protein. Now, this gene would be responsible for a protein that, whereas I mentioned that muscle will use a certain amount of energy, so we've got a tightly coupled relationship between the amount of tissue and the amount of energy expended, these proteins are involved in uncoupling that relationship such that you can expend more calories. And in particular, we're coming back to that brown adipose tissue that I mentioned. This is a tissue that can increase its metabolism and waste up to 90% of its energy as heat in order to um, waste energy and stop you becoming overweight. So it's a great target for much research now to prevent obesity, but in fact, here, this isn't borne out in our data, and I think probably because I mentioned human beings really don't have enough of this tissue to make this uh, this finding uh, worthwhile. So resting metabolic rate was not the thing that changed. Diet-induced thermogenesis, this remember is the increase in your metabolism when you eat, is significantly different between trials and the increase correlates exactly with the increased energy intake. So the breakfast group ate 540 calories more, therefore their diet-induced thermogenesis is proportionately more. By definition, therefore, this cannot explain why people who have breakfast might be more lean, because for every 10 calories you eat, you're only going to spend about one of them on diet-induced thermogenesis. So eating to lose weight, sadly, is not the solution, because you'll always end up ninefold worse off. So we do get a significant difference, but this is absolutely as we expected. This is about 8% of the energy intake in each group. The finding that I'm perhaps most excited about then is physical activity thermogenesis. This is the aspect which had never been measured in the ways necessary to answer the question. There are excellent studies that have been conducted using whole room calorimeters to work out precisely how many calories somebody expends, but they're stuck in a small room while they're doing it. So we can't really call that free living energy expenditure. Other tools that have been used, such as pedometers, give us an indirect look at how much you've moved about, but we can sometimes just get a number from these things instead of looking truly at the patterns of your physical activity through the day. So, the tool we chose to use is the ActiHeart monitor here, which is a chest worn portable monitor that combines measurements of your heart rate via these two electrodes and an accelerometer that shows us which direction you're moving in and how, how rapidly. So we can then combine the heart rate trace shown here, a typical example for a 12-hour period, and then the black marks here are your movements. Those go into an equation and researchers validated this as an accurate representation of your calorie expenditure. So the thing that excites me most here is that here is where we see our compensation. We have a significant difference in the amount of physical activity energy expenditure during that six weeks between the breakfast group and the fasting group. So what I'm going to do now is straight away just take this finding and plug it in to combine with our energy intake data to give energy balance. So if we look at the balance here, on this stack graph, this is the energy intake data I've shown you being higher in one group than in the other. This is the resting metabolic rate data I showed you being stable. The DIT showing a very small but proportionate increase to the energy intake. And here then we see that if the fasting group had the same energy, in, uh, energy expenditure as the breakfast group, they would have a huge energy deficit to cope with and lose a huge amount of weight. But here's where we see the compensation, whereby the breakfast group may be doing more or the fasting group may be doing less physical activity. So the very last part of the talk then... Um, as I said at the start, we are the Department for Health, so um, it would be remiss not to actually try and translate this into health outcomes, and really that's the clinical endpoint that, that we really need to address. So for the final part of the talk, I'll be looking at this little triad down in the bottom corner. These are not really the bad guys, they sometimes get a bad rap, are um, adipocytes, our fat cells, and they are implicated in this triad by way of our body composition, do we gain or lose fat mass in these scenarios? Fat then relates to our metabolic control. This happens in a number of ways. Simply the presence of fat on your body is literally less metabolically responsive than other tissue like muscle. So the more of it means that on balance, the ratio of responsive to non-responsive fat uh, tissue on your body is poorer and you may have impaired metabolic control. And then the presence of that fat Combined with a chronic progression of getting worse and worse metabolic control leads to some um, poorer blood lipid profiles. So collectively we're looking at um, the metabolic syndrome, um, poorer glycemic control, higher insulin levels is leading to diabetes in society and cardiovascular disease stemming from that and directly from the increase in body mass. So as I say, for the final part of the talk I'll deal with body composition metabolic control and blood lipid profiles. Very simply, as you would expect, um, both groups lost a little weight because there was that negative energy balance in both groups. But on the energy balance slide, there was a far greater um, negative energy balance than in the breakfast group. um, And we see that related to the amount of weight loss. So our fasting group lost a significant amount of weight, almost half a kilo, whereas our breakfast group, that's about half the weight loss on average, but with the larger error bars here, we can conclude that this was fairly random between individuals. So it's only our uh, fasting group losing a significant amount of weight, and we didn't just weigh them, we used a DEXA scanner that we have access to over at the sports training village. And you can see here where there's obviously bone, as you get from a usual x-ray, but the dual x-ray methodology here allows us to see, you can see the outline of this person's muscle here, and then the kind of shimmer around the outside is, uh, is the adipose tissue or fat. So in doing that we can calculate whether they lost adipose tissue or muscle, and actually both groups lost 75% adipose tissue, and about 25% lean tissue. To see how that affected metabolism then, um, I'll start off just talking you through the, the insulin data here. Insulin is the hormone responsible primarily for controlling our glucose levels, and therefore we want to have good insulin action, so that an increase in insulin can get your glucose levels to where they need to be. This is the same figure layout as I've shown you before, so this first... Um, day of testing here, you can see if people have breakfast, the blue line, a large insulin response that comes down before lunch, and then a smaller insulin response at lunchtime. Whereas the fasting trial shown in red, their insulin is not going to increase all morning because they haven't eaten. And then when they have their lunch, they have a large insulin response. This is a really interesting pattern and something that we're following up in another strand of research known as the second meal effect. And how by having your breakfast you actually are able to control your glucose levels a lot better at lunchtime with less need for a high insulin response. So we do have differences when we just compare a day when you have breakfast or a day when you don't. So this relates to any of you. If you have breakfast on a day, you'd be more like this pattern. If you don't, you'd be more like this pattern. Again, however, we don't see any change in that response over the six weeks. Having breakfast, everybody has breakfast again after their six-week intervention. These curves are not different to this curve or from one another. So there's no chronic change in insulin signaling in these groups, which was actually surprising to us because just to zoom in on a sample of the genes that we measured, um, these are genes that are really um, involved in uh, pathways for, of insulin signaling. So. These are insulin receptors, carbohydrate responsive binding proteins, and so on. So, this is the machinery in your fat which is responsible for when insulin arrives, eliciting a pathway that will take up glucose. And we see these consistently increasing across the genes we measured in the fasting group. And of course, you saw we didn't see a change on this graph in whole body insulin responses. It's worth noting, therefore, that this is whole body responses. And about 90% of the sugar you ingest is actually going to be gobbled up by your muscles. They're much more insulin responsive. So, whereas if we feed people glucose, as we did here, we can measure their glucose levels and conclude things about what their muscles are doing, in order to actually make conclusions about how their adipose tissue may have responded, we actually take a small sample of adipose tissue... And then we can analyse that specifically in the lab. So this is the same tissue as that gene data came from. And in fact what we see here, so this is before the intervention, um, uh, at the pre-time point, both groups fairly similar in their glucose uptake, whether basal or if we stimulate with insulin. So essentially here we're repeating a test that we've done on a human being by feeding them glucose, We're repeating that by actually taking their cells and exposing them to glucose with different levels of insulin. And what we do find is a significantly increased rate of glucose uptake after the six weeks when you've had breakfast. So there is some suggestion here that actually the breakfast group might be getting more sensitive adipose tissue over that time. And actually if we calculate an index of insulin sensitivity we can get a simple number to reflect that increase in insulin sensitivity with breakfast. I haven't got the blood glucose data to share with you, but actually what I have, I think, is perhaps more exciting. This is data we gathered from a small 50-pence piece size monitor with a catheter that's just inserted into the tummy fat, and it measures glucose every five minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we applied this during our six-week intervention, and you can get some really informative outcomes from this. So here is a typical breakfast consumer, so we see them waking up, and we can see spikes for breakfast and later in the day. This is a 4 to 10 scale, so it's fairly well regulated. About 7.5 is a cut-off that's been published to show that if your glucose goes above that level, the extent to which it exceeds it and how long you stay there is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So, not very long with breakfast consumption. Our breakfast skippers, therefore, they have obviously low glucose all morning, and then when they feed, unsurprisingly, just after 12 o'clock, when they're allowed to, a large increase right up off the scale of this figure, and stay there longer throughout the day. There's a number of ways, statistically, we can carve this up, but the best that's agreed in the literature is to look at a coefficient of variation to describe how variable glucose levels are. And what we have here is just the data for the afternoon. So remember, this is a period when both groups are following the same feeding patterns, eating a similar amount in the afternoon. And while they're similar at week one, by week six, our fasting group have a significant increase in their glucose variability. So they're poorer at controlling their glucose levels in response to the same foods. The very last aspect of the talk then is just to move on to those clinical outcomes. Blood lipid profiles. So these are the ones that your doctor will often be most interested in to tell you about your risk of cardiovascular disease. So if we start with the cholesterols, um, you often get told about your total cholesterol level, which you'd like to be less than 5.2. I can say that this group of lean individuals that we've tested here are below that level on average, and so their total cholesterol levels are not unhealthy, and perhaps for that reason, the weight loss they've experienced has not necessarily improved that. They all have experienced an increase in their HDL, or their good cholesterol levels, and again, you want that to be at least one millimole per litre. If it falls below, that is an unhealthy level of um, HDL cholesterol. So overall, we have a group who are healthy in this regard and haven't improved um, substantially. Um, Again, for the the scientists who prefer to look at the mechanism, we can see that a lot of the genes responsible for mobilising and metabolising fats have increased in our fasting group, but obviously because this group don't have high blood fats to deal with, that's perhaps why we haven't (coughs) seen that effect. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether you do get this effect in individuals who may have elevated cholesterol. And the very last data to show you to go with the cholesterol is to consider blood lipids more holistically. So you may also have measured at the doctors your uh, triglyceride levels, fatty acids or actually C-reactive protein. So these we don't see an effect on and more confirmation that this is generally a healthy group of individuals. C-reactive protein is probably favoured over cholesterol now as your best single indication of your heart disease risk. I've used the full scale here, up to three, because generally you're on a traffic light system, that if you can be below one, you're nice and healthy. So again, confirmation to those of you who took part that this is a nice healthy level of CRP and no difference between groups. So we may be seeing a floor effect here. They've lost weight, they've become more healthy in some ways, but not necessarily in the ways that that they didn't need to here. If your cholesterol is already healthy, your CRP is already healthy, there was no improvement to be had. And as I say, our big focus now will be seeing whether people who have a need for these improvements do then benefit from having or skipping breakfast. So that's the complete picture in terms of energy balance and our uh, health outcomes. I know there's a large amount of data there, so I can, I can only apologise for that, but I'm <laughs> excited to make sure I share as much of it as possible. Um, the very final thing for me to do is just to acknowledge... Collaborators here at the University of Bath who um, have worked on this project with me, and when I say with me, particularly uh, Judith Richardson and Enhad Chowdhury have done the lion's share of the work on this, so I think they deserve uh, far more credit than do I for for getting this completed. Um, We have a team of psychologists in the department, data I didn't have space to include today. But it goes without saying, we're making sure we get as much information as possible in terms of surveys and actually qualitative interviews to see how you all felt about participating. Um, Dr. Costa Sinsas at the University of Nottingham has assisted us with our gene expression results. And then uh, Lisa Austin in the Bath Research and Development Office for supporting us throughout the research process. So, um, again, apologies for the large amount of information to convey to you, but hopefully, the specific aspects that interest you um, have been clear. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to take any questions if you have any.